0: Hello and welcome to Power of 10, a podcast about design operating at many levels, zooming out from thoughtful detail through to organisational transformation and on to changes in society and the world. My name is Andy Pollain. I'm a service design and innovation consultant, educator and writer. My guest today is Lou Down, Director of Design and Transformation for the UK Government, where they're leading change in the UK's housing sector. Lou was the former Director of Design for the UK Government, where they founded the discipline of service design to the government, growing the 1,000 strong design team into one of the largest and most influential design teams in the UK, winning a Designs of the Year Award and a DNAD Lifetime Achievement Award. Lou is an influential voice in design through their writing and keynotes, and most importantly, Lou has just written an excellent book called Good Services How to Design Services That Work. Lou, Welcome to Power of 10.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I just gave the little kind of potted bio, um, but tell us a bit more about how you got to, to where you are now.
1: Yeah, so I, I probably have an interesting background like most people who sort of found themselves in service design. Um, I started off as a writer. Uh, for the Tate and uh, sort of quickly progressed into being a producer and I used to make the the kind of interactive uh, videos and uh, guides and stuff into the galleries and I remember wandering into one of the galleries testing one of the guides at the time and seeing someone putting a, a big kind of sign on the wall saying please don't use your mobile phone And at that point, I obviously thought I had invented service design because I was like, wow, surely everyone should be designing all of these things uh, at the same time. And obviously I hadn't. Uh, And so I ended up moving into kind of consultancy, uh, moving around different agencies and then um, went into government. And started the government service design community there um, and brought in service design standards and various other things like that. So that's kind of my journey. Uh, I, I have a sort of epiphanal moment, I think a lot of people do of when they discovered that they actually want to focus on the kind of whole problem. So yeah.
0: So what did you study in that case?
1: Uh, I actually studied fine art and then uh w- yeah, I went on to study uh economics and linguistics after that um because I was really interested in communication and how words and money are basically forms of communication, uh, which is very helpful when you're having to kind of write business cases
0: <laughs> yeah, i can imagine and in government
1: yeah Th- there was a i remember seeing
0: once for the Tate the Tate modern i think it was there were these little leaflets and I used to use them as a good example of you know, um, and they had different journeys around the Tate saying, you know, on a rainy day or, you know, time time on your own or kind of first date. Do you remember those? Mm, were they, were yeah. They
1: yours? No, they, they weren't mine, but one of the really fascinating things about the Tate actually compared to many other galleries is that the experience of visitors is kind of first and foremost the most important thing. And so I remember one study that we did actually that, that found that 40% of people who come to Tate Modern, only go to the cafe. And most galleries would be up in arms yeah. about that, trying to get them into the into the rest of the gallery. And, you know, at the time we just sort of said, well, that's great. You know, if they're if they are enjoying the cafe, let's let's make sure that their experience in the cafe is the best one that they could possibly have. And let's try and you know, kind of bring the experience of art into the cafe. And so we started putting in, uh, you know, kind of small pamphlets and leaflets and stuff about the exhibitions, about, you know, kind of small sort of snippets of what, what the art was that was on display. Nothing too heavy because obviously people are eating and meeting friends and stuff like that. And and, uh, and I thought it was a really, really nice pragmatic approach to actually what what it is they were there for, which is creating a, a kind of interesting and enlightening experience for people regardless of how they wanted to interact. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there was a nice bit. I mean, the thing I liked about that was this idea, I mean, I guess it's very sort of jobs to be done-y, but it was very much this idea of I'm not here to come and visit a gallery and be educated about art or experience culture. I'm here because I have some other purpose in my day uh, and the gallery is fulfilling that that job for mm, me.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's, that was very much it.
0: So this would have been your, um, was this your sort of first introduction to designing for the general public, as it were?
1: It was, yeah. And I started off as a writer. Uh, and obviously, you know, kind of leaving art school, you're full of so many syllables, uh, so many complicated sentences that you you forget how to communicate with human beings. So um, I, I sort of learned the trade of, uh, I guess, communicating with people uh, when I was there. That was a, a really great lesson Um but yeah, it was it was it was my first job uh, and, and a learning in, in many ways. But it was definitely it was my it was the thing that, that sort of pushed me into service design, realizing that actually you could you can be very clear and, and communicative about the thing that you're doing. But unless that is linked up with all of the other experiences they're having at that particular moment in time, including the fact that you've just asked them to use an online audio guide and someone's telling them not to use their mobile phone. Then your experience is is not going to be a good one. So, um, yeah, it was it was a, a really really interesting time, a lot of learning.
0: Well, congratulations on the book. It seems like the uh, clear communication skills has been well learned because it's a it's a really, um, it's a it's a great book. Uh, it's so annoyingly good actually because I, I you know I was reading a lot of it thinking oh, I wish I'd written that.
1: Um, <laughs> oh, thank you very much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's also very clearly written. Um, you know, it's a really, it's actually a really, it's a really good read. You know, it reads really well. And I, I really like the, the tone of voice and it's, it has great clarity in the way you, you wrote. Um, I found a tweet of yours from a while ago uh, announcing the principles of good services. And uh, one sort of not long later saying, I was almost like the next one, I'm thinking of writing a book. Uh, and now you have. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's go back to the beginning. What What was the genesis of, of the book? W- was it the principle? Uh,
1: that's a really interesting question, actually. So um, the genesis of the book actually was a workshop, as as I guess a lot of uh, genesis for ideas are, and um, And it was a workshop that I was running with uh, some senior civil servants. uh, And I had about five minutes to sort of come up with a a workshop um, for them. Uh, I think someone else had pulled out. And so I said, OK, I'll kind of stand in. And, uh, myself and, um, one of, one of the designers at GDS sort of, uh, stepped in and said, okay, well, let's, let's run a, a workshop on what we think makes a good service. You know, that's a good conversation for anyone to have, regardless of their background or their expertise. And so we did. And yeah. the workshop really focused on, yeah, I guess a very high level, what, what the group of about 15 people sort of thought a good service looked like. And at the end of it, I just sort of looked at the list and I thought, you know what that that could be applied to absolutely any service that you you can kind of think of, regardless of whether or not it was a a public service or, you know, kind of uh, checking into a hotel or or getting access to healthcare. All of those things are are, are suitably high level, that actually they they would be useful for anyone. Um, And so I started to to kind of write them up and thinking, this is a a, a sort of strangely productive outcome from what I thought was going to be, you know, just helping to fill fill a time slot uh, a conference. Um, and that really kind of evolved over a series of months and sort of, you know, as I, I shared it with people and, and gathered different thoughts and, you know, deleted some and added more and split some into three and, you know, all, all the things that you do when you, you start thinking of lists of things. Um, and that's where the book came from. And, it, and I, I published uh, a blog post and I was okay, I think this is a thing, I, you know, let's see if anyone else thinks it's interesting. Um, it got picked up by a uh, fast company, and they they republished the blog post. Uh, so I think compared to any other blog blog post on my website, it has probably about three times the num- number of people who have seen it because it's quite just generally my blog is not super high traffic. Um, and and yeah, it just sort of went from there. I shared shared a kind of a collaborative Google Doc, and we ended up with about two thousand uh, people sort of commenting on it. Adding things, changing things, removing them, and really, the book is the product of that. So it's the product of not just you know my thoughts, the people in that workshop, um, the the two thousand commenters and and editors of that that document, but really a whole community in, and a history of of service design practice and what we mean by the materiality of a good service.
0: I was I really enjoyed the fact that you um, you focused on good services. And um, you know, you, you you talked about it right at the beginning, beginning of the book. There's there's plenty of books, and and don't don't think I didn't notice the little uh, the little dig. But it's true. <laughs> I mean, the book that I wrote with Ben and Lavrenz talks about what's the difference between services and products, and then sort of talks about how to do it. Um, and I think you quite rightly said, but we haven't actually defined what a good service actually looks like, and without knowing what the end state is, it's, it's you're sort of doing the other stuff without. Uh, It's sort of in the the dark in some respects or with no kind Mm -hmm. of end goal. And I really like the fact that um, you you talked about good rather than, you know, wow. I mean, I've had plenty of clients have said, well, what are the wow moments or the moments that matter? One of my kind of most hated kind of expressions because, you know, it usually means moments that matter to the organization and not to Mm. the user. And it also assumes that other moments don't matter. And and of course, quite a lot of small things, and you give lots and lots of good examples. Um, really, do matter, but they're not particularly wow well moments. And in fact, quite often, you know, people just want something, particularly with government things, um, they are sort of quite flat line. They're not. I don't. I don't want to kind of have a wow well moment when I'm applying for my driver's license, for example. Most of the time, the wow well moment is, oh, that worked. I expected it not to. How deliberate was it that you wanted to sort of not set the bar low, but really kind of say, listen, you know, let's, let's strive for good um, and not get distracted by sort of wow and, and kind of hype?
1: I mean, that that was absolutely deliberate. I think, you know, you, you and I have both been in the various kind of projects and, and sort of client meetings where... You're being asked to to create amazing, beautiful, you know, kind of elegant experiences for users, and you take a look at the the booking process or the the billing process or whatever it is for that particular uh, organization, and you realize that it's, that it's completely incomprehensible, and that is something that I think fr- it frustrates me. I know that it, frust- it frustrates every single user that uses those services that that often in the pursuit of you know, kind of wow worthy, award worthy, ultimately, um, experiences, Uh, most organizations ignore the very basic things like letting people know when and where they should be doing something, how much something should cost or sending them a bill on time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the, the reason why this is called good services and not great services is just exactly that fact that we need to focus on the basics of getting services to be functional before we can actually start you know, creating beautiful, wonderful, magical experience with people. I
0: mean, we've both talked about um, the fact that there's plenty of beautiful, wonderfully designed products, physical products around. Um, And yet we are not living in a world of wonderfully designed services, despite what kind of Silicon Valley might say, and certainly in public services. But I think it's probably a bit um, mean to be always harsh on public services, because there's plenty of um, commercial services that are after the moment of being sort of seduced to purchase something, the rest of it is really kind of cruddy. Mm. Why, why do you think that is?
1: I mean, it's because we can get away with it, right? You know, the, a, a company will always do what it, <laughs> what it thinks um, no one will notice. And, and one of the things that I started researching and, and becoming sort of slightly obsessed by in the process of writing the book was the fact that in contrast to our attitude towards product design and product regulation in the market, we have so few mechanisms to hold organizations of any kind to account for whether or not their service damages people's lives and that's partially because services are just invisible people don't really see them as, as a tangible thing that, that you can put constraints around but you know I, I sort of started looking at the types of uh, reasons why products get recalled versus services um, and you you know really s- silly things like you know there was um I think it's about 2,000 products get recalled every year in the UK and one of one of which that I sort of started diving into was a, a uh, melting cheese pot um, that, you know, it's supposed to be sort of like fondue that you put in your microwave and, uh, and the pot itself melted. And you think, okay, great. No one wants cheese on their fingers. Like that's, <laughs> you know, you've got your very British microwave fondue and, you know, you in t- plastic it's sometimes in your cheese. Hard
0: to differentiate.
1: Exactly. So so that's obviously something you don't want. But in contrast to that, where, you know, a service, you know, is thinking, looking quite a lot into um, the American system of student loans and a company called Navient and not to pick on Navient and, and in any particular kind of detail, because they're doing exactly what every other organization does in this case, has a rule where essentially every single uh, person answering the phones um, has to answer the phone call and complete that phone call in seven minutes which means that in certain circumstances they are giving false advice to users. And in one such circumstance, uh, it's one of the, the story in the book, one such user uh, who was eligible essentially for a scheme that would meant that she would have paid off her student loan completely um, because she was a public servant, uh, they didn't offer that to her and kept deferring her loans, which means that she probably will never pay her loan back. So really, really small... Uh, kind of incentivizations, structures of our services, ways that they work um, can have a massive effect on people's lives. But there's no, there's no regulation of that type of working. And so that was something that, that I became slightly obsessed by in, in the kind of book and, and why I feel so strongly that, that something like this book needs to kind of exist. Anyone could have written it really, but um, it just needs to be out there in the world. Uh, to to talk to us about what we mean by good service and and ultimately what we shouldn't be doing, which is designing bad services.
0: So I mean, the thing about it being invisible is, and we've ta- I've talked about this a lot too. And this idea, and you talk about as well of this this gap that happens where you um I mean, one of the ways I've described it was um, the the things sort of get get designed, they get taken care of. Whether that's a, a the purchasing moment or um, or it's a physical thing. Um, but the kind of transitions between don't because often it's uh well that's that's not my department's responsibility that's their department's responsibility and the other ones obviously saying the same there's this little kind of crack in the middle which i describe as a kind of leading to a an experience crevasse right you can kind of fall through this very small crack um, if you fail to make what ostensibly seems to be a small leap from one sort of part of the organization to the next and yet once you're down there you just can't get out And I think that kind of invisible nature, you can't tell the quality of a service up front because you can't hold it in your hands and look at it. Mm -hmm. That invisible part of it means that it also uh, doesn't get designed. Part of what was happening when I was reading it and you said anyone could write this book just now was that I was reading it and then thought they're absolutely right. This is kind of common sense in many respects. um, And yet and yet and yet it just doesn't get kind of executed and i think one of the things you do very well is to is actually to kind of pull all of that together because if you read through the principles there's nothing very contentious in there i don't think um and it's quite surprising that uh, that hasn't kind of been pulled together before it, it's mm. and yet we've had kind of decades uh, of um you know uh designers like uh Dieter rams and so forth talking about you know principles for for a product design
1: mm, exactly and and i you know this is a very uh it was it was a very grand ambition that i had when i i first kind of started thinking about writing the book but i i looked around at other areas of design like say Dieter rams as design principles for for product design or you know kind of um muller brockman's grid system for graphic design and there are established principles all, albeit ones that we can break and we can change and adapt and, and add more more detail, and nuance to for other areas of design, but there aren't there aren't those principles for service design. And I think it's just it's a product of, actually of the maturity of the industry. Up until now, we haven't been ready, I don't think, to to actually kind of sit down collectively as 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 you know a lot of people did within that first Google Doc and and actually say you know what what is what do we mean by good for what it is we're doing. And I talk a little bit about this in the book, but the fact that we don't have that means that as designers in organizations, we spend a lot of time just justifying our existence because we're not able to answer the question of what does good look like for your job, uh, where many other people would be able to answer that question. So I, th- I think this is, for me, having an answer to that question is really fundamental to what service design should become, which is a, a practice of, of actually understanding and knowing what we mean by buy good service of being able to design those good services and and you know I, I appreciate you, you sort of said at the beginning that it's a little bit of a dig at, at the kind of process obsession and that's not intentional but I I think we do need to move beyond talking about how we do things to talk about what it is we're actually supposed to be doing.
0: I think it's valid uh, I think there is a process obsession but I also think there's a, a thing going on that has been going on where people sort of de- define their disciplines by this is what it is and this is what it isn't And I think one of the things I always talk about is that I don't know that there is such a thing as a service designer, as a singular role, rather than it's an activity that a multidisciplinary and cross-disciplinary team uh, engage in. Because I think the important thing about that is that kind of um, both diversity in in every sense, but also all the different kind of people who are involved in making those services and designing those services. And one of the things that I think you know, you highlight in this and it sort of comes out is that people actually have to recognize that they're designing a service in the first place and quite often they don't. And that's probably why there haven't been these kinds of principles before.
1: There's an, there's an interesting kind of debate around whether or not you need a service designer or whether or not service design is the activity of a team. And I, th- I don't think there's really one answer to that mm. that question. It depends entirely on the circumstance. But one thing that I do know is that it's unfair to ask people who are not literate in what a good service is and why why they work in the way that they do to be able to spot, identify, and then solve problems with services. And I, I think of the, the kind of um, analogy with a, a road sign. So if you take a, a badly constructed road sign, most people who are driving past it would know that that is a badly designed road sign. You know, they can't read it. Uh, it's confusing. It doesn't tell them what they need to do. They won't be able to tell you how to fix it. And they won't be able to tell you that the kerning is wrong or that the font is wrong um, or that the spacing is wrong. A graphic Mm. designer will be able to tell you that and they'll be able to fix it. And I think the same is true for services where many people will be able to quite understandably, you know, spot the problem with a service. But they will not be able to tell you exactly what's wrong with that service or how to fix it. And I think we do need to start talking about the expertise that service designers bring to that space um, in helping us to understand what's, what good services are and how to construct them. And that's why I'm really keen to move the debate of service design beyond methodology, which absolutely anyone can be involved in. Anyone can facilitate the design of a better service. And you're absolutely right. You know, services involve multiple different people over, over long periods of time. But being able to actually kind of construct a service that is well designed is is a skill. And I yes, think we, yes. sh- we shouldn't underestimate that skill.
0: No, I think that's that's a very good point. And I, you know I think that the um, the fact that it's previously fallen outside of the world of design and just been seen as you know doing business or providing government services um, without designing them has meant that it hasn't had that intentionality um, and critical. Analysis, I'd say, um, that uh, a designer might brings to the the whole process.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I, uh, you know, heard service design many times being described as the business friendly face of design. Is if the only you know kind of benefit that you can bring to an organisation is just that you won't upset people, um, <laughs> <laughs> and that you'll you know you'll you'll help them to facilitate some thinking and you know kind of uh, move on slightly, um, and that that is fundamentally not what it's about, and and. You know, it's kind of why I wanted Mike Montero to, to write the introduction to this, because I think there's there's a really big question when we talk about good services, that it's not just about what is good for an organization or what's good for the user, it's also about what's good for the world, yes. because, none, you know, no service exists in isolation. So whilst, yes, you know, we're often the kind of at the coalface of interacting with various different levels of people in an organization, and, you know, that. That comes with some skill of negotiation and communication. We also have to be honest and true to the principles of actually understanding the ethics of what we're we're doing in the first place.
0: So that's it, and I absolutely agree. There's a, a a bit you very early on where you say your user defines what your service is, and I really really like that. I really like this idea that um, you know it, it's not what you think they they want. It's not what your business wants. Your your user is the one who decides uh, decides what your service is. Um, can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so I, I would 100% kind of stick behind that principle in, in pretty much any scenario, um, public, private, you know, any kind of service, that it is fundamentally your user that decides what your service is in many, many different levels. But that particular thought came from working with lots of different government services that essentially try to dictate what users are, are trying to do. Say, you know, there's a form that will help you to stop paying tax on your car. And we call it, you know, Sorn, not cod you know, kind of form V111. And that is not what users are trying to do. And users are trying to stop paying tax on their car. So they are dictating and they should dictate to you what that service is. So you should rename your service. You should restructure your service to help that user to do that thing. Um, and that is always a really, really careful balance because, you know, we can't be in a world where, particularly with public services, users dictate exactly what what the, what the purpose of the service is. So, you know, honestly, I think probably most people would love not to pay tax on their car. But the reason why we do pay tax on cars is so that we can pay for roads and we can pay for other public services. So there's always a balance. But when it comes to the, the how your service works, your user defines how that, that works.
0: I mean, you, you talk about this in govern, government services quite a lot where people are doing things that they they don't particularly want to be doing. Um, whether it's paying taxes or you know getting a registering for something or you know p- uh, paying taxes on their car
1: yeah absolutely and th- and that's certainly something that you you learn very quickly when you're designing public services um is that your job is to basically help someone to do something as efficiently as possible and to get out of the way so that they can get on with their lives and and i think that's actually very true for for many services and even if you think about kind of luxury experiences of you know kind of hotel check-ins you don't you don't arrive at a luxury hotel in order to check in you arrive there to stay there um and so when you're designing your check-in experience although obviously you want to make sure that someone feels as if they are ex- arriving at a, a beautiful lovely hotel you do want to get help them to get to their room as quickly as possible because that's what they want um and so that there's a there's a chapter really a that, that talks about the, the appropriate number of steps um, and uh, kind of parts of your service and balancing those off against how quickly or slowly someone should be doing something. And and there is a real art, actually, to to how many steps you put into your service, how quickly that service goes through, um, that means that someone has enough time to be able to make decisions, but also that they are not unduly held up uh you know, in, in various different business process that actually they don't need to be involved in.
0: Yes, I really like that, that the idea of kind of looking, really looking at the rhythm of it, um, not only the complexity and the, and the where it's, you know, I want to break something down or see if you can collapse two things into one, but this idea of there are times when you kind of want to allow people to take time and there are times where you just want that to kind of be seamless and, and quick uh, rather than everything being super quick. I think also there's nothing worse than being a uh, feeling like you're a kind of passive extra in someone else's script. Um, I remember buying a car in uh, in Australia, and I just wanted to I just wanted the car, and when I went to pick it up, I just wanted to pick it up. You know, give me the keys, give me the paperwork, and I'd like to go. And then, but they'd obviously gone through a whole sort of customer experience thing where this lady then sat me down and talked me all through the kind of possible added after-service <laughs> extras and things that they could do for you. And I, I literally, sort of about 10 minutes in, just went, do you know what, I'm not going to buy any of this stuff. I'd just really like to take the car. And she sort of nodded at me in, with this kind of face of some sort of horror and then just carried on for another 20 minutes going through her <laughs> kind of patter. And it was just deeply, deeply frustrating. And of course, it had the opposite effect, you know.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think to be honest, most service designers sort of listening to this would would resonate to the fact that I think we've all designed experiences like that. You know, I think we've all got overexcited about a a moment in time, a journey, a particular service. And we've, we've sort of thought, Oh God, great. We can make people so excited about this. We can, you know, as soon as they arrive that they can, you know, see a, a, you know, kind of 3d model of their car and we can talk them through all the different benefits and, you know, they can leave super excited about it. (laughs) And you, you, I think it's often because we're, we're designing those things in isolation of understanding what else is going on in that person's life, that actually these things are forming very functional kind of underpinnings infrastructure to our lives and actually the the main thing we want to do is spend time with our loved ones our friends our family you know go to the cinema you know have a drink in a pub we we don't want to spend time with someone that we don't know in the forecourt of a garage talking about the benefits of car (laughs) we just don't um yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) well or you kind of build it up so much you know you make that you can only inevitably then drop people later on um, and that's a, that again, that idea of actually it, it's kind of counterintuitive because you kind of tend to think, and I've heard people talk about services in terms of, sort of dramatic arc and so forth and this build up. But actually, you kind of want often you want a sort of fairly flat line, almost sort of monotone experience because that feels mm. quite good. That's what yeah. it just works, right? Feels yeah, like.
1: exactly. And have you ever wanted a dramatic arc to getting access to your pension? No, <laughs> it's the answer One, to that. No, the only thing you would know. Be,
0: oh look, I've got twice the amount of money that I thought I had. That would be yeah. the only thing. The uh, the surprise and delight. I mean, that's exactly. another term that gets used a lot, right? Surprise and delight. Um, I
1: know, but how many times have you ever wanted to be genuinely surprised in a service? Uh, you know most of the time the surprises that we have when we're interacting with services are negative surprises because we didn't realize how much it was going to cost or didn't realize how long it was going to take and this comes back to this whole point of just getting the basics right because unless unless you surprise people well then they're just going to be surprised by all of the really bad things that are happening in your service instead
0: I think most of the positive surprises are actually oh I expected that to be rubbish and it wasn't Um, But there's also, I think, some little surprises which feel like, oh, that's nice. Someone thought about how I'm going to be feeling at that moment in time. Um, And I've had a couple of of moments, sometimes at hotels or something like that, where it it felt like, you know, someone has really thought through or or understood the the sort of emotional state or the context at the time and has known that I'm maybe coming from something that isn't that great, you know, or I've just been on a long journey or whatever it is and they've kind of put a little thoughtful thing and that moment of feeling like, um, well, that person has thought about me at that moment in time. Uh, really evidences empathy in in a in a lovely way and it doesn't have to kind of be a huge thing it's often very very small details I think
1: yeah totally and I and I wouldn't I would never downplay those moments but if you've been standing in a queue for three hours trying to check into your hotel and then you get up there and there's a nice little note on the on the pillow saying welcome to your hotel we're sorry for your you know kind of terrible journey that you've had to get here it it cancels it out and so that you know I would I, th- I think for me what thinking about good services is really about is actually getting away from, getting those basics done so that you can actually yeah. start thinking about those other unique, you know, kind of thoughtful things about your services that are are actually kind of completely bespoken, completely unique to it um, without having to worry about making sure that people have their expectations met or there aren't any dead ends in your service, you know, those sorts of things.
0: One of my other sort of pet peeves is the brilliant basics – is often sort of equated with quick wins and and yet i think the basics are some of the hardest stuff to get right they're the thing that are most heavily sort of um in the foundations and underwiring of, of services and it takes a long time i think to unpick some of those things and um and you, you quite a lot of the stories you talk about in your book are things like that where you trace it back and you go well there's a thing you know in someone's kpi or is it there's a thing in the way the system or the IT or the service was originally conceived, you know, um, 60 years ago that is having this effect on people now. Um, and so to actually undo some of that thing, to get the brilliant basics right, you really have to kind of dig deep into some of the foundations.
1: Yeah. And also I, there's something about the, the term kind of brilliant basics that I think just sort of slightly pisses me off <laughs> in the fact that, <laughs> I find it you quite know, annoying know, but basics aren't brilliant. Basics are an absolute base level necessity that if you're going to provide a service to users and like if you're if they're going to rely on your service for either you know kind of a critical part of their lives is in a public service or they're going to pay for it you absolutely should do the basics um, but it's never the stuff that the people who are running those services would ever get an award for it's never the thing that you know is, is shiny and sexy that will get you a promotion and it's always the stuff, like you said, that will take the longest to fix. You know, it's the fact that your your data center doesn't work overnight, so it has to do batch processing, meaning that no one can submit yeah. their car tax after five o'clock in the evening. You know, it's those sorts of things that, that actually are the, are the really, really hard work of service design.
0: It's like ensuring that a car's wheels are round or something like that, I think, isn't it? It's amazing.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
0: So we're coming to the end. Uh, As you know, the the show is named after the Eames Powers of Ten film, um, which talks about the kind of relative size of things in the universe and their relationships. Mm -hmm. So I ask every guest, uh, what one small thing? And it could be something that is overlooked. It could be something that's well designed uh, and underappreciated. It could be something that needs to be redesigned what one small thing has would either would have or has an oversized effect on the world
1: so my mine is a very very small thing uh and it's also something that has not been overlooked uh but we still haven't necessarily mastered and that's waking up in the morning <laughs> so
0: <laughs> tell there are
1: that. there are millions uh, If well yeah tell my wife that <laughs> so um there there's there are millions of alarm clocks that you can buy. There are Alexas, there are Google homes, there are alarm clocks on your phones. None of them adequately really kind of get to the problem of how difficult it is to wake up in the morning and how easy it is to press a snooze button um or to turn your alarm clock off. Uh, And so my my kind of thing of the moment, and I would probably say a different thing tomorrow, but might might give you a context into my morning and how difficult it was to wake up this morning, (laughs) is is uh an alarm clock that actually helps you to wake up properly um, rather than being uh rudely uh kind of ripped from sleeping and then uh tricked into thinking that you're going to wake up again in 10 minutes but in fact actually sleep on for another hour <laughs> <laughs> okay. so that would be my my small small change to uh change to, to life is waking up in the morning
0: i'm pretty sure i've seen an alarm clock where you have to solve a puzzle before it goes off
1: <laughs> maybe i just need to find that one then
0: <laughs> i once uh, actually once when i was a student i set a i had a um you know one of those timer plugs that you use you know if you go on holiday and turns the lights on and off. Oh, i used yeah. to use it as an alarm clock and connect it to my hi-fi and i used to have a. Oh,
1: um, nice. i put That's on pretty, like led zeppelin or
0: something and stupidly i set the volume before i went to bed and of course in the still <laughs> of the morning i woke up to <laughs> the middle of kind of led zeppelin tune and it i really did like i i sat bolt upright in bed and, and just I was having a heart attack and that was terrible <laughs> Yeah, yeah, not that. that. <laughs> I can't recommend it. <laughs> <Don't> do that. <laughs> so, Lou, thank you so much for being my guest. Where can people find you online?
1: So you can find me at uh, com, or you can uh, find stuff to do with the book at good.services.
0: Brilliant. And we'll we'll put all the links in the show notes. The book is brilliant. Uh, it's It seems to be... Um, I've seen a lot of activity online of people you know, trying to get hold of it. So it seems to be doing well. Um, I wish you all the best of luck with it. Thank you so much for
1: being my guest. Thank you. It's been great to be on here.
0: Thanks for listening to Power of 10. If you want to learn more about other shows on the This Is HCD network, where you'll find ProdPod with Adrian Tan, Decoding Culture with Dr. John Curran, Ethnopod with Jay Hasbrook, Bringing Design Closer and Getting Started in Design with Jerry Scullion, and Talking Shop with Jerry, myself, and some of the other hosts, feel free to visit thisishcd.com, where you'll also find the transcripts and links to this show. You can also sign up to our newsletter or join our Slack channel and connect with other designers around the world. My name is Andy Pollain. You can find me at pollain.com or APolaine on Twitter. Thanks for listening and see you next time.